Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Eason. And me, Bex. And welcome to our recap, speculation and theories, all of which are probably completely wrong about part eight. Got a light? <laughs> Got a light? Oh god, that was so creepy. Got a light? I've been doing that all day. <laughs> I mean, what an hour of television that was. It was just remarkable. I, I, I don't know what we thought was going to happen. It certainly wasn't anything that actually happened. But it was just stunning. I mean, the the whole sequences in black and white, they looked amazing. And you can understand why Peter Deming was tweeting about it beforehand, because he must have loved making that, mustn't he? Yeah, it truly was like no other. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've, I've never sat down to watch something and been so in awe of what I'm seeing. It's a standard of television which I just never thought I'd see. And I think it wouldn't look out of place at the very least on the big screen, but certainly you could see it as like a piece of art in a gallery. It was incredible to watch. Mm. And it showed how bold, innovative, unexpected, and frankly exhilarating the new Twin Peaks is, actually. And again, I think it also fits... I know we keep saying this and everyone else is saying this as well. It really fits with the idea that this is one long 18 hour piece of work and it's a wonderful hour that i think would really fit beautifully even more in the context of this much larger story um and obviously yeah we're watching it in the uk at 2 a.m and i think it is the perfect 2 a.m viewing (laughs) Um, it's almost like as later parts of the hour go on it's like watching a 1950s B-movie or something, <laughs> which you've found in the middle of the night. It's like, it's just the most incredible thing I think we've ever seen. Yeah, certainly the most beautifully shot 1950s B-movie you'll ever see. It, it just completely defies genre. It's, you, you can't even explain what it is. It's not, it, it's not horror, it's not supernatural, it's not a drama, it's not... It just is. It's not an episode of television. <laughs> it's a thing which is presented to you and you can take from it what you want. And it leaves you kind of in a state of confusion afterwards, but not in a bad way. I mean, we couldn't sleep afterwards again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's got so many different layers and shades. And it's a bit like, I mean, it's, you know, there's there's elements of a razor head in there. It's very... Kubrick-like, it's surreal, it's abstract, it's strange. I think it really plays upon this idea of uh, the theme of time being out of whack this season. It's kind mm. of, is it future, is it past, time and time again? And I think that the visuals I would place firmly in the Lynch camp at their height, but the storytelling, I think this is very, very frosty, if that's the term <laughs> which you can use. I mean, it really is, uh, especially having read The Secret History and I've been flicking through it again this evening in preparation for this, the kind of storytelling he wants to do, this kind of really intricate plotting, it's really come to the fore here. And I think it's putting this series, The Return, in a wonderful context, which I think is really going to have payoffs for people who've watched Twin Peaks for a long time, Fire Walk With Me and The Secret History. And I think there are even elements, I'd go so far as to say, that are strongly linking to the missing pieces, uh, which you should try and track down if you can. And I think there's even a couple of elements which probably come straight out of the 
original shooting script of Fire Walk With Me because I remember looking at some of the elements of that today and there are some lines in here which are really filtering back to that as a piece of work. And I know we've talked a bit before about almost how impressive it is that such a thing has ended up being made in the, the sort of modern TV age. Um, it must have been quite a leap of faith on Showtime's part to actually say to them, no, okay, that just do whatever you want to do. And how astonished we've been in previous weeks that this is on, you know, primetime television, even after this kind of, you know, so-called golden age of television. But it's it's not even just primetime. It's, it's what in the US, it's Sunday night, 9pm. You know, that's like dark blue on the Monopoly board level of primetime of television. And to put that on is astonishing. And to actually be so bold as to say, yeah, there you go. That's what you're getting on Sunday night at 9pm. And it makes everything else feel so pedestrian and lacking in vision. Um, I, I know some people haven't necessarily liked the what seems to be a lack of narrative structure, but I don't think there is a lack of narrative structure. I think it's just a very, very different narrative structure to the the kind that people have become so used to. Things, narratives have become so standardised it takes something to come along and just completely break it open, take all of the pieces apart and put them together in a different way and say, actually, you don't just have to keep doing the same things over and over again. You can You can have vision that is beyond just doing something with great acting or great visuals or a, an interesting story you can you can just have ambition i think that's it's something that you only feel is lacking when something comes along with ambition and with vision that says actually this is what we're doing and and this is how we've made it and you talk about the golden age of television that we are in now that really is the legacy of the original Twin Peaks back mm. in 1990. And I really hope that this new season, The Return, produces an equally exciting legacy. I think it's going to take time, but I think it really is going to change the way television is made again. And I think it's so exciting. If this doesn't win every award next year, I don't, I don't know what people are going to do. Yeah, certainly. I think we've spoken a little bit in the past about how the cast are fantastic and we've talked a lot about how Lynch and Frost both are really bringing their A-game here and doing some fantastic stuff. I think the creative team from the technical side as well here really need to be given a tremendous boost here because I think this has shown, you know, even as a showcase in this episode, some of the most beautiful cinematography I've seen on television or on screen because I'm including film mm. with that as well. Same with sound design, it's just incredible. It's the most beautiful thing to experience in the most base way through your senses. You know, you see it, you hear it. It's just an experience that you find yourself surrounded in at 2am in the morning. Um, and it stays with you. It really stays with you over the next uh, day or two or three or in this case, a couple of weeks. I'm so excited for that. But we don't want to get bogged down in that. There's a lot to get through. So should we uh, crack on? So 
So the first thing you notice is that the double R logo at the beginning is in black and white this time. I think it's been changing around a lot of episodes, but it's very noticeably different this time. And then it, it heads almost directly into the immediate aftermath of the end of part seven. So Bad Coop and Ray are making their getaway from the prison. And it's an incredibly sinister scene in the car where Bad Coop is, is saying to her, oh, you've got the information I need. And, and Ray is, is kind of trying, appearing to play him for some more money. And the way Bad Coop just stares at him <laughs> from the passenger seat, guy's creepy. It's like his neck is doing a full sort of 90 degree switch and his body <laughs> remains straight. He doesn't seem human at that point at all. Uh, but what's notable, even compared to what happened in the Yankton scenes with Cole, is again, he's gone back to that mode of being the more confident bad Cooper. Mm. You know, we were talking about the fact he's more like Bob when he's in the prison, where he's yeah. trying to put on the appearance of being human, yeah. almost, and being like Cooper. That pretense has gone, and either he's got his energy back because he's free again, or he is now in his normal mode. Yeah. And he knows that the car is being tracked. He says there are three trackers on the car. And he, he types something weird into his phone. There are like these three lines. I think it says C, fire, and then a funny symbol. And then docks, but the O is also a funny symbol. And he does something and says, pull up to the, get close to the van in front. And then he types a number plate of the truck in front into this thing. He says, oh, that's the tracking taken care of and throws it out the window. And I don't understand what he did. Or why that would prevent a physical tracker on the car from tracking them. Maybe it's another funky thing he can do with electricals. Yeah. Or that Bob can do. But whatever it is, they're now pretty free and clear of anyone following them. But Ray is still concerned that the, the police aren't just going to let them go. Now they've escaped from prison, they're going to come and find them. I thought it was funny in this scene as well, when he's typing in the number plate, how the predictive text on his uh, phone comes up with like two alternatives to the number plate next to it and one is like defeat and one of them is Dagar. It's a very <laughs> little message there <laughs> that he's giving out as well. So Coop is acting as though Ray doesn't know what's happened to Daria and saying, oh, Daria is waiting for us to give her a call to say that she's safe. Ray starts trying to play bad Coop for more money for the information that he has. And he says he's memorised the information and it's, all the numbers are in his head. Which, again, might go back to the coordinates. So what's weird about that is that I'm pretty sure that when Bad Coop was talking to Daria, didn't he mention coordinates or what he was looking for was letters and numbers? Mm. So do you think that there's any some of the information that Ray might have? He has like half the things. Or is it just a, are we looking too far into it? I don't know. Because he specifically said, do you know what coordinates are? Yeah. A series of letters and numbers. And then this time Ray is specifically saying just numbers. Yeah, I don't know. So does that mean that Ray has like a missing piece of of the information, or or just that he didn't understand what coordinates were? <laughs> and then Coop says to Ray, "Oh, I think you'll want to go to the place they call the farm, which I think isn't somewhere that we know of yet, unless it's a location that we have been to, but we're unaware of what it was called." But it, it seemed like Ray didn't necessarily ha- have been there before. He knew of it. But I didn't get the impression that Ray had been there before. I don't know what it, what it meant other than maybe it's like a hideout or a safe house or somewhere that he can go while the, the police are theoretically looking for him. And then he tells Ray, after Ray says, oh, we're going in the right direction, he tells Ray to turn off onto this incredibly creepy, unlit back road somewhere, which uh, 
I, I think was a it was quite a funny thing really because because just as I think after the last part after part seven it felt like the plot was really picking up momentum and going in the right direction and then it just takes a sharp turn off the road off the highway into something that's very unexpected and again that really beautifully creepy um, shots of the car driving through the night just everything illuminated by the headlights reminiscent of the introduction of Bad Coop right at the very beginning I don't know how driving at night can just be so frightening but somehow they've managed to make it frightening yeah I think it's the first of the sequences in this episode which are mesmerising they're almost like a hallucination um, and it is something that's straight out of what you see in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive as well but what do you think the coordinates are actually for? I mean, again, I'm, everything we predicted has been wrong so far. Um, <laughs> but I think in light of events that come up later on in the episode, I think the two things that might be possible are, one, he's looking for the mother character. We'll talk about that a bit later on. The other thing is that maybe he's looking for the location of the convenience store. Mm. And there's a reason why I think that might be the case, but I'm not completely sure. Um but like we were saying in the previous part, I still think that the key to this might end up being Betty, who we still haven't come across yet. Yeah. And so maybe part nine is where we see Betty Briggs revealing everything. So they end up driving pretty much in the middle of nowhere. And Ray says, oh, I want to I want to get out. I need to take a piss or whatever. And he gets out of the car and walks off to one side. And you see Bad Coop take the gun from the glove compartment, which we knew was there because he had asked the warden to put it in there. Yeah, he wanted a friend in the in the glove compartment. Yeah. And he checks, there's bullets in it. He gets out and confronts Ray and basically says, look, I want the information. I want it now. And then you realise that Ray has also got a gun, which can only have been given to him in prison because they haven't gone anywhere else. And he turns around and Coop tries to shoot him and nothing happens. So clearly something was done to the gun because it had bullets in it, but it's not going off. I don't know how you would do that, but there must be some mechanical way of doing it. And then I think something that that no one expected is that Ray just shoots Cooper. And he says something like, I tricked you. And you realise that they've both been playing each other for the entire car journey. That bad Coop thought that Ray didn't know that Dario was dead and that Coop knew about the hit from Jeffrey's. But Ray has known all along. And I don't know if we're going to see at some point how that came about. But I can only assume that Ray had a separate thing going on with the warden. That the warden set him up with the gun. And made made sure that Coop's gun was useless. So that Ray could take care of Coop. Which also takes care of the warden's problem. Because he was out of the prison, he was gone. It's not the warden's fault that anything happened to him. And it puts that whole scene in a new light where the warden is standing at that balcony in the prison watching them leave and looking concerned. Because he now realised that he was thinking, God, I hope he does it, I hope he kills him. It's it's very, very clever. Because there must have been something going on this whole time. And I do wonder if Jeffrey was involved somehow because he's still clearly working for Jeffreys, aiming to kill Cooper. Yeah, because in the previous sequence involving Bad Cooper and Daria... The implication was Coop said, I'm going to go back in tomorrow. And he knew that the hit was going to take place tomorrow as well if he didn't get taken back in again. Which also means that Ray must have known that because more than that time has passed, Mm. he knew that Daria was dead 
Yeah. And he knew that it was up to him to make the hit. And so then I think you're right. It's not just the warden, but maybe there is some link to Jeffries as well. And again, I'm not sure if this is relevant or not, but it's kind of interesting that Ray shoots Cooper just like Josie shot Coop in the season one finale. You get like two shots to the gut. I'm not sure if she shot more than that. And then he kind of falls back flat and you see that kind of same bleeding wound in his in his stomach. So that was kind of an interesting moment. Yeah, because of course this is right before a kind of mini break in the middle of the series. And you know that when that happened last time, the giant appeared to Dale. Yeah. So it's perhaps not unsurprising that what happens next involves Lodgy-like behaviour appearing. But then, unlike Josie, Ray isn't bad at killing people so you see him move towards him he's clearly going to finish him off he's going to shoot him again and make sure that he's absolutely dead which is what Josie completely failed to do, to do last time but he kind of gets interrupted <laughs> and this is where things start to take a bit of a turn in the story so all of a sudden out of the trees in front of him he suddenly sees several sort of dark figures coming towards him there's like loads of them all lined up kind of staggering forward there's clearly more than one of them. So these are the same things that I think appeared firstly in the prison cell near Bill Hastings and secondly at the uh, morgue where the body that we think is Major Briggs's body was being kept as well. These characters who are in the credits listed as woodsmen, which again ties to potentially what happened in Fire Walk With Me with some of the denizens who appear um, above the convenience store. These creatures kind of start moving forward. They're a bit like spirits because they're flickering in and out of existence a little bit. That kind of light strobe effect that you see when Black Lodge stuff is happening mm. comes on a few times, even though it's pitch black in the woods. And they gather around the body. I think there's three or four of them that actually come really close. And they start sort of massaging it and feeling around the wounds and smearing blood all over the corpse, but specifically around the face as well. But they're not just doing that. They're kind of dancing as well there's something strange some weird ritualistic kind of dancing that they're kind of doing around the body it's like they're kind of jumping around in a circle or something yeah i mean the one thing it reminded me of was the kinds of crazy dancing that in fire walk with me the jumping man did the guy with the funny mask with the pointy nose and also the grandson of the tremonts who does that funny skippy dance as well Mm. Um, i'm not sure if it's the same thing but it was it was almost like they were performing some kind of ritual around the body that involved blood. And it does immediately start triggering these ideas of some of the crazy Crowley rituals that were hinted at in the secret history of Twin Peaks as well. And Ray is kind of completely in shock. To him, it's got that weird thing they do in Twin Peaks where the sound gets really muffled and slowed down, almost like the sound of screaming is stifled. Mm. He can't scream. It comes out as like a slowed down growl almost as he's trying to take it all in and he looks absolutely terrified but as he's looking at the corpse what's really strange is sort of i think it's actually near the wound isn't it Mm. so maybe that's where it's leaking out you see this black bubble thing appearing and then it's really freaky but the face of bob appears in this mini balloon kind of thing which is forming near the wound yeah it reminded me almost like a, a sort of giant frog spawn or something yeah. it's kind of like the gloopy sack of uh, yeah and it's clearly leaching out of the body and i think in light of what we see later on these creatures these woodsman creatures these dark figures they do appear to be kind of salvaging bob they're rescuing him from that situation and it's kind of odd, but you 
then start wondering about that scene in Yankton when Doppelkoop was looking in the mirror and he asked Bob, are you still with me? Mm. That's good, you know, when he knew he was there. But now it looks like Bob has been removed because he's been shot. Maybe the the host doppelganger is now weak in some way, so he's decided to move on. So we don't know where Bob is, where mm. he's gone, but we're left with the corpse of Doppelkoop lying there. And it's interesting, there's some weird stuff where the light is changing a lot in this scene. It does look very black and white, some of this stuff. But mm. then as it ends, it looks almost bluish, which might actually be the real light, which we're, which we're seeing, um, sort of like a twilight kind of effect. And Ray, who's completely confused and terrified of everything, runs to his car. First thing he does is he calls Philip Jeffries. <laughs> so, I mean, they're throwing in so much Jeffries stuff here. He's got to appear in some way. And I'm really hoping it's going to be a mini David Bowie cameo somehow. Yeah, that would be really awesome. But he makes this call and he says a few things which imply that he knows a little bit more about the crazy things he's seeing. Yeah, because although he was freaked out by the the kind of creepy sort of ashen figures who came out and danced around the body, as, let's be honest, pretty much anybody would be, but from what he says to Philip Jeffries, um, it, it doesn't s- seem like it's taken him entirely by surprise that something weird has happened. So I, I don't know if he knows a bit more about this or if he's just been warned that that some weird shit might happen when he tries to kill him. But he says something about how... He says, I think he's dead, but he's found help, which is an interesting way of putting it. He doesn't describe what it was. He just says, he, he's found help. And he says, I saw something... Cooper could be key to what this is all about, which I think is he referring to Bob emerging out, yeah. that, he, that he's seen something that could be the key. Um, and he says that if he is alive, he knows where I'm going. Which must be the farm. Yeah. And if he comes after me, I'll finish the job then. But he, he doesn't respond in a way that makes it seem that, that he has just seen something that is completely and utterly unexpected uh, in which you think that he would react slightly differently on the phone yeah the fact that he refers to the appearance of the woodsman as help yeah. implies that he maybe suspected that something like this could happen and it's almost like he's gotten out of there knowing that he's done all he can and it also tells you that Doppelkoop who's a doppelganger he's not a human mm. because he's from the Black Lodge he clearly can't be killed easily mm. he's not able to be taken out with just a couple of gunshots which tells you that there might be something more to how these Lodge characters need to be destroyed or sent back when they're in the real world. So then we cut to the roadhouse and on stage, it's not Nine Inch Nails, but the, in inverted commas, Nine Inch Nails, <laughs> um, singing a song called She's Gone Away. What's really interesting here is that the guy who's introducing them, sort of the MC on stage, really looks like little Jimmy Scott, who's the guy who sang the Sycamore Trees song. Yeah. Um, it's very weird that they would choose somebody to dress the same way and have a very similar appearance as well. It makes you wonder what's really going on with the link between the roadhouse and the Red Room sequences, at least. Yeah. And also, I think what's funky is that the music has obviously come quite early in this episode, which seems odd in the context of a structure where there's a song at the end of every hour. But if you're viewing it, as a full 18-hour movie, the previous part didn't really have a, a musical interlude. It had the Green Onion sequence, 
but there was no band playing at the Roadhouse, I don't yeah. think. So it's actually only shifted by a little bit in time. And uh, certainly, I mean, it's a it's a very standard scene. It clearly shows that the Roadhouse can, you know, get big bands, unless the Nine Inch Nails are actually just a cover band that you can get. <laughs> um, Remarkably good cover band. <laughs> Looks like them in everything. But it's merely a very small digression because then it cuts back to uh, what's going on with Mr. C or the doppelganger there. Yeah, and he, he just wakes up and sits up. But that's all that you see and there's no sign if Bob is with him or not. It, it, you see that he's alive in some respect, but I wonder if now if he's going to be in a weakened state without Bob, if things are going to be a lot more difficult for him to do whatever it is that he's trying to do. Yeah, so this is the doppelkoop that was the one just from the Black Lodge. He doesn't have the inhabiting Bob spirit with him. And I think the other element of that is when Bob left Leland, it kind of ripped Leland apart. Yeah. But this has not done that here because Doppelkoop is not a regular person. He's a denizen of the Black Lodge. Then it goes to black and white flashback for pretty much the rest of the episode and first we go to White Sands New Mexico on July 16th 1945 for the first nuclear test from the Manhattan Project and it's this incredible shot starting out far away from the explosion and you hear a countdown then you see tiny mushroom cloud in the distance and as the camera starts moving towards it, towards it, towards it, and it starts moving towards the camera, towards the camera, towards the camera, and these incredible strings come in, and it's that piece um, by Penderecki, Threnody for Victims of Hiroshima, and we get closer and closer and closer to the surface of the mushroom cloud, until eventually the whole camera gets consumed by it, and what follows is just the most remarkable series of images you were ever likely to see on primetime television. It's, it's just fire, it's chemical reactions going off, there are bits that look like bugs swarming, things being created, things being destroyed, this just sort of beautiful swirl of toxic um, energy, just, it's, it's almost indescribable. And the remarkable thing was that I I didn't know what was CGI, what was practical effects. There were bits where it looked like um, film stock had been scratched, but I didn't think they were shooting this on film. And the bits that looked like slowed down smoke, kind of just blowing towards the camera with lights and this kind of pulsating lights that made it look like arteries and a body forming. I, I don't know, it was... It, it felt like a dozen different things at once. Yeah, those the strings you hear. I mean, at first I thought it was some kind of Bernard Herrmann score, and then I realised it was something that I'd heard in The Shining as well, and, that, and it was the, the Penderecki music. And it is just the most remarkable sequence. There's, It's beautiful, but it's also got that sense of the violence of an explosion. It really captures the intensity of it and how there's a sense of both the destruction coupled with the creation that one of these explosions is actually producing. 
I think the key thing here as well is that we're suddenly observing the huge effect of this man-made explosion and its influence on the natural world around it. Um, certainly it's it's framed so that it's something which is so disruptive and, mm. you know, creates absolute chaos, but it's almost beautiful chaos. Um, and one which is likely to sort of produce something out of it, which is certainly what happens. Yeah, and even those uh, frames where you see little dots moving all over the screen. I mean, some of them look like dust blowing in the air. But um, if you've ever used a, a turf microscope and looked at how the movement of single molecules is when they're being tracked with sort of fluorescent dyes, it looks exactly like that. There's a sense of um, tremendous organisation, but it's completely randomised movement as well. So some of them actually looked like actual scientific images as well. The beauty that you see when you're uh, doing microscopy of sort of living processes as well um, it really captured that sense of the beauty of the minutiae of reactions and events taking place on a very small scale but also showing events happening on a bigger scale as well with these swirls of flame and smoke as this explosion is going off in this mushroom cloud yeah and then out of all of this chaos it cuts to a shot of a convenience store called just convenience store <laughs> Very, very old convenience store with a couple of um, sort of 1950s um, pumps outside of it. And first there are these flickering lights coming from inside. It seems like the door is open and there's light coming out. And then smoke starts coming out. And you get that same back, forth, back, forth, back, jump, 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 back in time that you got in the purple room in part three with Nido. And the smoke starts to fill the whole of the forecourt of this place and then all of these figures appear these um kind of woodsman-like figures and they're almost swarming around like flies or moths that have been attracted to the lights that are going off there they're just kind of going around and around and around the outside and then i think eventually you start to see shadows of people inside as well and what's odd is that if this is the convenience store at the moment it looks like a single story building because of course in fire walk with me we've seen figures from the black lodge in a convenience store um mike references him and bob living above a convenience store and all these things but it's like they're living on a on the upper story of the building so in, in fire walk with me we've seen uh, Mrs. Tremond and her grandson, or the Chalfonts, as as they previously were. There was a woodsman there, but played by a different actor to any of the woodsmen that we see now. There was an electrician, the jumping man was there, the arm was there. We know that Mike would have been there as well. And we see the ring as well on the four-mica table that the, that's, it's come from. And we know that Bob was there as well. And we also know that Jeffrey says that he is been to one of the meetings at the convenience store but at this point it looks like it's just a single story building and then these figures are all inside it but it, it looks kind of abandoned it looks almost like a ghost town and I wondered if this was some kind of a, abandoned settlement from within the blast radius of the test site that had just been left because it was going to be affected by the by the radiation from the nuclear test is, is it something that 
has therefore just been abandoned by humanity and these uh, spirits or whatever they are move in um, is it somewhere that's nearby the test site is what I'm thinking because it seems to be associated with it cutting straight to it after the after the test certainly the woodsmen if they're the same people in this scene they haven't become sort of all black and charred and sooty as they appear later on I mean mm. if you freeze frame you can see that they're very disheveled but their clothes still appear clean so mm. they're not in that advanced state that we do see them uh, later on sort of in the present day when they're you know in the Hastings cell etc yeah and what I like is also very near the end of that sequence you see the lights flashing on inside the convenience store and you can see neatly stacked in pyramids you see these cans in the window and immediately I saw those and I was like are those the cans of creamed corn the Garmin Bosier which you hear referenced in Fire Walk With Me um, I think mm. I think you pulled the the quote that Mike says it's when it's the it's the Sparkwood and 21 scene when Leland is driving with Laura and then Mike pulls up into sort of the camper van next to them and starts screaming saying you know Laura is your father trying to tell her that that Bob is inhabiting Leland yeah he says you stole the corn I had it canned over the store yeah so it's it's very obvious that when they sort of flicker on you can see those cans and this is that that convenience store but like I think it was a nice spot because I didn't realize this but you do see that stairway at the back but at that point in time this is what 1945 yeah they're just stairs at the side they don't go anywhere yeah and what was it that um what was it that he says originally uh he says we lived among people i think you say convenience store we lived above it i mean it like it is like it sounds i mean the thing is above it it could just mean that they're living in the air above it produced by what's happening i don't know certainly there's something about the fact they don't exist fully formed then um, but there's something funny going on. And this is clearly the meeting place of the Black Lodge denizens. And it's interesting that actually in a show where people say, oh, there's not much given away about the plotting of things and you know, and what the backstory is, this episode is all about setting up the backstory of the creation of some of the major elements of the Black Lodge mythology. Yeah, and then we get this image of this sort of alien-like creature floating and it looks like the creature from the glass box that attacked the, the watchers in New York. And I think it, in the credits, it's played by the same actress, Erica Einan. So I think it's pretty certain that it is meant to be the figure that, that attacked them and came through the glass box. And she's, she's kind of floating in the same way that Cooper floated when he emerged into the glass box, just kind of almost as if there's no gravity. And she kind of spews out this long trail of gunk that has all these weird eggs lodged in it. And in amongst all these eggs, there's this black, slimy sack with the face of Bob in it. So is this a creation of Bob? Is this how Bob came into the world, caused by this extreme act of human violence, I suppose? Yeah, certainly the appearance of Bob in the scene, it's that. Because it's his face on that black sack or whatever it is, it does look really like the one that is removed from uh, Bad Coop when mm. he's been shot earlier on. But obviously this is back in time, so it tells you that this was maybe the moment when 
Bob came into this world. Although we should be clear that this is not the start of the Lodge mythology, because mm. as we know from the secret history, and certainly what Hawk says as well uh, in the show, the mythology of the Lodgers goes back a lot, lot further than yeah. this. But this could actually be the event when we're seeing the origin of Bob, sort of triggered by um, the atomic bomb being dropped in the New Mexico desert. Yeah. And th this whole kind of throwing up stuff it also reminded me of what happens to coop when he's trying not to get sucked into the black lodge and dougie goes instead and he throws up all of that garment bosier and the kind of black slime but what's interesting is that as well as very clearly seeing bob in this kind of weird jelly-like sack coming out you very clearly see other eggs in there as well there's you get quite a good close-up of one of the other eggs as the camera goes past bob so it's not just him that's coming out into the world um, could it be that other particular spirits are also being born out of this event? Yeah, so it almost makes it seem like Bob is a special one in particular. But this explosion has somehow triggered the ability of this character who is, well, the mother who we think is the one who was banging on the door of the purple room, etc. Yeah. You'd better hurry, my mother's coming. Yeah, so that same character, the one in the glass box, the atomic bomb has kind of given her the power to actually birth all these creatures and, and the presumption i think is that these are all evil creatures as well being produced uh, as well yeah what was the thing in secret history about the mother was it another crowley thing yeah so it's kind of a complicated section i still haven't got my head around how it all works i've read it a couple of times but there's the section featuring alistair crowley and jack parsons where they talk a lot about i think it's to do with the mythology of what takes place in crowley's book the moon child as well which is about the war between the black and the white magicians and the lodges associated with them but also there's this idea that they are trying to bring forth a character called the mother of abominations i think it's like the mother of babylon or something the implication that this is like some potential antichrist like feature which seems to switch purposes i think it's originally created um sorry certainly the moon child is created by the white lodge for the forces of good but it doesn't seem to work out that way but the mother of abominations is able to create these entities uh, which are evil and it's part of one of the things which is trying to be summoned by these bizarre rituals that are happening led by jack parsons under the influence and uh, coercion of alistair crowley as well so this is like pure evil is being birthed by this creature um, mm. in some way um, and it looks like that's what's happening here so i think it's really interesting that although there was always talk that the secret history was kind of a almost a parallel project to what was going on it's clear that frost has put huge elements of that directly into it but you don't need to read it all to understand what's happening mm. but if you go back it just enriches the whole experience for both the book and also the tv show and then we cut back to the explosion again that's still ongoing and this kind of shiny gold sort of uh, liquid nugget appears and it doesn't look spherical it doesn't look like the gold ball that comes out of Dougie Coop when he goes gets sucked into the Black Lodge it, it's it's not symmetrical it, it's almost like a, a kind of uneven stone but it looks like it's made of liquid um, almost similar in shape to the, the the weird kind of metallic stone that the, the re receiving box in Buenos Aires turned into 
um, a few parts ago. But, but this time it's gold, which is odd because the gold seems to be coming up again and again as some kind of spiritual symbolism, particularly when we see the next bit in in the, the kind of, I don't know what we're going to call that place, we'll come to that in a minute. So I'm not sure what this is. I don't think it's Bob because we've seen how he appears like this. So, I, so I'm not sure what this gold gold thing is. I think the fact, I mean, it's a bit of an aside, but so you mentioned the gold sphere, which is taken out of Dougie, you know, this kind of, you know, you were created, you were manufactured for a process business. What I think is interesting there is that, isn't there that scene where when his head disappears in the puff, mm-hmm. there's a weird egg-like thing that replaces it. And it yeah. Before it starts spewing all this black gunk, that's the thing where Mike covers his eyes. Yeah. And I think these this egg that you see then is very similar to the eggs which are being spewed out by the mother here. Mm. So something funny is going on um, involving the, the lodge influences. But again, you know, it may just never become completely clear, but there are some obvious parallels between what we're seeing here. Yeah. The other thing that a lot of the, the explosion imagery reminded me of, if you go back earlier on to where Coop gets attacked by the doppelganger of the evolution of the arm and falls through the floor. I think as he's falling through space, it kind of cuts between that and an image of some kind of pink blooming thing in water, almost like smoke blossoming underwater. And we weren't sure what to make of that at the time, but it was like something coming into existence. And comparing that with this imagery it feels similar and yet more peaceful and good I suppose is the only way to describe it so I, I don't know if that will ever be returned to if it was just if it's, if it's ever explained what the non-existent is or what the place that he was falling into is but was it something coming into creation or saving him or 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 some something being brought into the world I don't know yeah, and, and just as in that instance, Cooper then falls into the purple world with the purple ocean and the, the box where he falls into the terrace. So we now switch back to the same purple ocean, but the seas seem a lot choppier and we, we go across what looks like this vast, endless ocean and you get to an island and on top of the island is this incredible giant house with what looks at first like no windows at all, but it's just perched perfectly on top of this rock, just jutting out in the middle of the ocean with nothing around it, as far as you can see. And it's not the same structure as the one that Coop fell into before. It's completely different. It looks like a kind of beautiful art deco mansion, I guess, in the middle of nowhere. And the camera moves towards it, and you see that there is actually one window in there. There's a tiny little window that the camera finds and moves through into the interior. So distinct from, as you were saying, the place where Nido was in the the purple zone or whatever it was, um, it's not at sea level, it's kind of raised up in the air. And this one window is interesting because I think the only other place we've seen that is completely closed off with just one window is actually the building in New York where the glass box is. So mm. it does look like it has no windows, but there is one window, which is where the box is, which is why it's covered up. Yeah. So... There's something strange about that as well, how this same metallic-looking building or mansion or whatever it is has a similar setup, maybe of having just one window. But I'm not sure if that's 
that intentional or not. But it does seem that what we're doing is we're entering the same world that Nido was in, but just a different location within that world. Yeah, and possibly a different time within that world as well, if indeed there is any linear comparison between what's happening there and what's happening on Earth. Yeah, and certainly it does imply that if what happens in this zone now is actually uh, a force for good, it does imply that maybe Nido and the American girl were actually also acting in uh, Coop's best interest as well. There was always a bit of controversy over that. But we don't know, again, if this is all dependent on when we're looking at these different... Uh, regions as well in terms of time zones so inside this room again it's completely black and white it's a 1920s art deco style um, there's a lamp at the side which has what looks almost like an inverted owl cave symbol on it and we realize we're seeing the same sofa the gramophone and the floor as we saw in the opening scene of part one when the giant or question mark question mark question mark is talking to cooper but potentially they're in different um, places and times when they're communicating so this is where that character seems to live and there's this woman on the sofa who's called in the credits senorita dido and you just get the impression that with the music playing i mean two things that spring to mind are one that phrase you know there's always music in the air mm. listen to the gramophone and also that listen to the sounds idea which came from um what the giant was saying when he was looking at the gramophone again and again. And you also see there's this large bell-shaped object as well, which is the same as what was on top of that strange space submarine setup as well. Yeah. It has these two dials very clearly on the side. And these are the ones where Nido you know, pulled that lever and switched everything that was going on in the purple room. And we don't really see a lever here, but we do see that the giant kind of emerges from the back and kind of disappears <laughs> again as well. And I don't know what this place is. I mean, whether it's the White Lodge or whether it's a separate place. I don't think it's the White Lodge. It almost looks like these people are kind of looking out over the whole situation which is developing everywhere. And maybe they're in the past or out of time completely, you know, just kind of um, sort of coordinating events and looking out for when there's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I got the impression in the original series that there was a link between Major Briggs and the White Lodge. Um, not just because of the, the dream that he has that he talks to Bobby about, but also when he disappears uh, and seems to have travelled in time and comes back, there's a suggestion that he might have been in the White Lodge and he has that memory of it and it's a very green, verdant place. And this doesn't seem like anything that that resembles any of that. Yes, yeah, certainly a Wyndham Earl also describes it as a place which is kind of all happy and heavenly with skipping fawns and things like yeah. that. And this is not that area. No, and I, I always felt like maybe the giant, if this is still the giant, but in the original series, that the giant was almost some kind of balancing factor. Because obviously he was helping Coop at times and giving him clues, which the new giant question mark does as well. But then you also see him in the Black Lodge, or at least in the in the waiting room, in the Red Room. And I always felt like he was kind of ambiguous and he was acting not necessarily wholly as an agent of either the Black or White Lodges, but as some kind of exterior influence who was maybe balancing things up and had the ability to go to all places and interact with... So, you know, maybe he could go into the Black Lodge and the White Lodge and yet remain, if, you know, if he was even older than the lodges are. We don't know what this place is. And of course, there's the woman there as well, um, who we haven't seen before. Senorita Dido, her name is in the credits, but this whole sequence is completely wordless, which is, I mean, it's, it's just one of the most 
beautiful sequences I think I've ever seen on TV and completely wordless, just with the most haunting music. But you actually see her before you see him step out from behind the bell when it seems like there's an alarm going off from this bell. And he looks very concerned about about this. It reminds me of, you know, Mike is talking to the evolution of the arm and says something is wrong. Yeah. You know, clearly, clearly some something has happened. That's why, you know, the flashing lights are going off. The alarm is happening. Um, and it's clearly his job to take care of these things. So he turns off the alarm using those dials. He disappears again behind the bell jar. I'm sure he just stands there waiting. But then you see him go up these you know, beautiful stairs. It looks like he's in an old movie theatre or something. Mm. Um, and he goes to another room and even though it's on another floor, it has another one of these big bell-shaped structures in it as well. And he heads over to where there's a big projector screen. And what he watches on that screen is what we've just observed. So he's seen the atomic bomb exploding. He sees the events at the convenience store. He sees the mother releasing all those eggs, one of which appears to be Bob, and that kind of freeze frames. And he looks very concerned, almost like he knows that he's going to have to do something now. Like this Mm. has been released, and it's been released by the man-made action of this bomb going off Mm. um, and and providing mother potentially with the energy to to birth uh, Bob. And he starts floating up. And I think the music there is really cool. It, it sounds a little bit like the music that was playing at Sparkwood in 21 during the hit and run accident. Mm. Um, and he floats almost like when Leland floats up in the Red Room at the end of Fire Walk With Me. When mm. Mike and the arm call Bob back because they want their Garmin Bosier back. And you see Leland floating. And as he's floating, the woman appears at the other end and... the room kind of lights up a little bit more and you see the appearance of this spotlight that starts to follow her around and when she sees um bob on the screen i think she starts to move closer towards it and get sort of like a a full shot of what's in front of her yeah there's this incredible moment where she's coming around the, the side of almost like going up into a kind of stage area where the screen is And for a few seconds, all you can see is her perfect shadow being thrown by the spotlight against the wall. And then as she moves into frame from the right hand side, the spotlight is ahead of her shadow is ahead of her as she moves. And there's this moment where she almost kind of reaches up as she's as she's going up. And it looks like she's reaching up and catching up with her own shadow is it's it's just breathtaking the way this is shot I could just watch it over and over and over again this wordless series of events it's just beautiful so we see the giant kind of floating on his back and you see this kind of gold yellow sparkly dust emanating from him it's kind of like the the thing that emerged from the boy after the hit and run accident as well I'm not sure Mm. it's exactly the same thing and then they're almost like fireflies forming into the shape of what looks like a, a corpse. And the woman is watching and she's kind of amazed and there's like a happiness to her, like like what's happening is bringing sort of love and joy into the world or some kind of salvation. But then out of this construct made by all the fireflies, you see a gold sphere, one of these Dougie-style spheres mm. kind of emerges from it and it floats down. And as it kind of reaches the woman she kind of holds it in her hands and she looks kind of relieved but she looks quite sad as well there's a real sort of melancholy sense there like she knows the fate or the trajectory of 
what's going to happen next, but also understands that because she's seen Bob on the screen, she knows that this thing is out there. And now she understands what must happen next as well. Um, and sort of in the sparkles of this sphere, it kind of focuses on it for a while. And then you see in the most remarkable scene, you see Laura's face, actually the face from the prom photo, mm. perfectly sort of fitted inside this golden spherical orb or whatever it is. It's, it's really it's really beautiful. I mean, it's it's clear now that, you know, this is what the whole show has always been about. You know, I think one of the later episodes is going to be called Laura is the one. And certainly mm. she's a really essential character here. I mean, it's the same face we've seen not only in the prom photo, but it's in the opening credits all the time over the um, over the forest. You've, we've seen it on all the promotional photos. It's been used so heavily, and now we're getting a sense of how important she is. And what the woman does, she kisses it, and then she releases it, and it kind of floats up and goes into this gold tube, which you can see beautifully against the black and white room. And see this weird steampunky roof with all these cogs and things turning. And the ball goes into this tube and it then seems to roll through it and then it emerges over a map of the earth and it looks like it's about to be dropped somewhere in north america and it looks like it's going in the the trajectory of potentially maybe even twin peaks i don't know Mm. because we don't know when it's being dropped um it could be completely out of sync with the timelines we're seeing but it does feel like we're getting a sense that this explosion has triggered something terrible. The, uh, as a result of this, the mother has produced the evil Bob. Certainly this Bob represents the evil that men do in a very literal sense now because it was created by the bomb. And now the only solution appears to be that the giant and Senorita Dido have resolved to create this form which has the appearance of Laura in the sphere and release it to Earth, potentially as the counterpart to the evil that Bob is. So we're not really sure what this orb represents, whether they are literally creating Laura's spirit and sending it down for some purpose. Are they in some way marking her as a special person that she is either going to be sacrificed or going to achieve something or... or inflict some kind of defeat upon Bob. I mean, you you could argue that her refusal to be possessed by him was itself a form of victory because the alternative was for her to be completely taken over by him and, and, and by evil. Are they creating some kind of inhabiting spirit that is going to her? So is she inhabited? Is she herself some kind of spirit? Because it's interesting that Mike and Philip Gerard appear the same. So even when Mike is in the lodge, he looks like Philip Gerard. So does that mean that Philip Gerard is not necessarily a person like Leland was? Is he actually some kind of spirit form? And could could the same be true of Laura? Could could she be a spirit without knowing it and has the same form inside the lodge and out? Yeah, I think it does. I'm not sure exactly what the answer is, but it does seem to tie to the statement that Laura makes at the very beginning you know I am dead yet I live I'm getting a really strong sense that Laura is somehow her spirit or some form of her or most probably even a physical form is now alive in the world so we're not even sure when this timeline is I mean maybe this is happening now so maybe she's being maybe this is the event which is synced up in some way with what we see when Laura is zapped out of the red room in 
the first couple of parts. Mm. You know, maybe this is the moment when she's sucked out of that and then she's being thrown into this as a result of what the giant and uh, Dido are doing here. But it does suggest some kind of connection between the giant, question mark, and Dido and Laura as we knew her in the original series. Even though the first appearance of the giant in Twin Peaks that we're aware of is after she has died. Right, so then the timeline moves forward. It was 1945 and it just ticks forward 11 years to 1956. It's August 5th, still in the New Mexico desert. And we see an egg sort of in the sand. Now, I'm not sure if this is actually meant to be Bob, you know, given what happens later on. But it could just be one of the eggs that mm. we see. Certainly there was that other egg that was released after Bob went past. And maybe this is that instead. It could still be an evil lodge spirit in some way. But that's emerged into the real world in the same place where these um, atomic tests were happening. And it starts to hatch on the ground. Now I'm not sure again what's happening, but the thing that comes out of it clearly isn't a regular organism in any way. And I don't know if that just means that as we saw these strange dark figures as well, is this all just something about the bomb creating sort of weird radioactive creatures and things emerging? Is it some weird allegory for that, that we're actually seeing these strange mutated creatures? Certainly it's a very eraserhead thing to happen. Mm. Um, it just looks very strange. And it's a strange creature that emerges. It looks a bit like a like a beetle or a cockroach or something, but its legs are really freaky because they're like a they're like frogs' legs, aren't they? Yeah. And it kind of crawls out. I don't know what we're going to call it. We'll call it cock frog <laughs> for now. <laughs> cock frog. Does that work? Yeah, we'll go with cock frog. Uh, cock frog. <laughs> cock frog. It's cockroach. It's frog. It's cock frog. Uh, so then we cut to the wonderful sort of, you know, the innocent scene of a boy and a girl walking out past some building. I think. Yeah, but doesn't it look like the convenience store? But it's no longer run down and dilapidated like yeah. an abandoned town. Yeah, exactly. So the other thing, I mean, I, I'm glad you noticed it originally, but you see the stairs on the side going somewhere now. Yeah, there's now a there's now a, a new story on top of it, which could be where where the Black Lodge inhabitants now are having their meetings, because the the pumps at the front look the same, the door looks the same, but it's now all spruced up, everything repainted. It looks like it's a functioning convenience store as opposed to the abandoned place we saw before. But the stairs at the side are the same, but there is now a floor for them to go to. So this is the above the convenience store. It could be. It could be. So as they're walking, I think it's some brief conversation about a song that they like or something. Um, but the girl, she looks down, she sees a penny. It's a Lincoln penny that she sees. Um, this might be important given the the appearance of one of the characters later on. It's not mm. Lincoln, but it's a guy who's like a Lincoln impersonator turning <laughs> up. Um, but again, it fits with this whole coin imagery which is turning up. Now, she looks at it and she says, oh, heads up, that's good luck. Mm. Which might imply that what happens next might be good for her. I don't know. Um, but she kind of rubs it. She rubs it just like Dougie does when he goes to uh, the Silver Mustang. He rubs, yeah. you know, rubs the coin and in that case he puts it in the slots. But also we've seen the coins before with Red's trick that he yeah. does in front of Richard. Yeah, and also Hawk, when he drops a coin, when he goes to pick it up, that's when he sees the inscription on the stall door and then finds the missing diary pages inside. So it seems like the coin was leading him to that discovery, deliberately. 
So as they carry on, you then see like bodies floating down in the desert. I think it was like one, two, three of them, I don't know. And again, they're doing that thing where they phase in and out of existence, but walking very slowly. Mm. And it's interesting that this happened after that egg has hatched. So yeah. for some reason, there's been a delay of 11 years from the explosion and the mother birthing these eggs and potentially Bob as well to now this egg starting to hatch. It could have always been there, but now it's starting to hatch. And then as a result of that, these figures who we now learn are going to be the woodsman characters are starting to appear all over the place, almost like they're looking for it or they're trying to guard it or they're protectors of it in some way. And it kind of makes you wonder what they were doing because the last time we saw them, it was back in 1945 when they were all shuffling around during the first iteration of the convenience store. Hmm. Yeah, so then we cut to this couple who are driving in the night and there's, I think there's a, another car that stopped on the other side of the road or something and they slow down and the woodsman appears at their window and says, Got a light? Got a light? <laughs> Got a light? That's freaky. But there, there, there's something almost um, mechanical about the the kind of undertone to his voice. It's, it's almost like two voices. Um, it, it's super creepy. And he just keeps saying it over and over again. And then you see other woodsman-type characters starting to surround the car and um, the the woman in the passenger seat is freaking out. She looks like she's screaming, but you hear these kind of deep, almost kind of growling sounds, like you were talking about with Ray before, where everything seems slowed down. And it's a bit like if you think back to when Leland slash Bob kills Maddie, and in the instances where you see Bob holding her rather than Leland, you, you hear the same kind of slowed down, almost kind of gurgling scream. It's, it's a similar kind of... Rumbling growl that you get. Yeah. It's a very weird sound because it's muffled as well. It's almost like it should be really loud. Yeah. But it's not. It's kind of damped down, almost like the people are powerless to be able to, to scream properly. Yeah. And eventually they just drive off and they swerve around another one of these figures that's coming onto the road and they just get the hell out of there. Uh, which turns out to have been a very good move on their part, given what happens to some other people who get asked the same question later on. And again, it's a bit of an aside, but so obviously when you read the secret history, and even when the timelines are happening here, sort of in the 40s and 50s, at first when it went black and white, I thought this was going to be an Aliens episode. And I was a bit mm. I was a bit nervous, because I've always worried that that's where the secret history might be, he might be heading. But this is really interesting, because the scene where you see this couple driving around, all of a sudden these people appear... It's weird because it does fit with those kind of classical reports people used to have of, you know, a couple driving in the middle of the night on a lonely road and then they would claim they'd be abducted by aliens and things mm. like that. Certainly there's something very eerie about these experiences that fits with what happens in the secret history where they talk about how the interactions that people in the real world have with lodge spirits have been misconstrued as interactions with aliens almost when they've seen things they, they think that what they're seeing is an alien when actually it might be the giants it might be um even the mother creature we know has appeared as well and the other thing that's really funny and again this could be a complete shot in the dark but i do wonder if there's you know something to the phrase you know men in black these mysterious men in black who are always hovering around these mm -hmm. alien sightings i mean you see it a lot in the x-files and and it's spoofed a lot in that episode, Jose Chung's From Outer Space, which actually has, I think, Alex Trebek turns up as one of them. 
but it's interesting that these are literally men in black yeah and these are floating around almost like it's spoofing the whole mythology that exists around people reporting these alien abductions in the 50s so then we go back to the girl and boy who are walking towards a girl's house and he asks if he can kiss her she's a bit shy but she says yes um they seem to be i don't know like 14 15 maybe um and they say good night and she goes in and it's almost typical lynch to have this you know very kind of sweet innocent almost kind of quaint scene of this you know sort of young slightly uncertain love going on and then it cuts to the next scene uh which is the kind of lincoln looking woodsman guy turning up at the local radio station kpjk and it, it seems like he's being attracted by the transmitter almost like he can tell that there is electricity there or there are radio signals there so he, he goes towards it and there you see all these different people who are listening to the sound of the radio station there's a, a woman working at the diner which is kind of strangely reminiscent of the double r at times there's a, there's a mechanic working on the car who's kind of a bit of an might be a bit of an ed figure and then it also shows you the girl who's now up in her bedroom who's listening to the radio at night um, with the window open and the woodsman he comes through the front door of the radio station and there's there's a, a, a woman at the reception and he, he keeps asking again got a light got a light and she seems almost frozen in fear by his presence and he he kind of grabs her by the head and keeps saying got a light got a light and just kind of crushes her skull with his hand um, and this is all in black and white so the effect of seeing the the blood and everything like that is incredibly startling it's like thick black gloopiness that you see yeah uh, yeah yeah and then he, he he makes his way through into the broadcasting studio where the dj is on air yeah and i think that the scene where he kind of squashes her head is very very similar to what the glass box creature did to Sam and Tracy in New York and potentially what Red implied he was going to do to Richard as well. <laughs> you know, I can't remember what it was, but it was like sawing your head open or whatever. You know, it, yeah. It's that same thing which is happening, which again links to the idea that Red may be a bit lodgy as well. Yeah. So then he, he kills the DJ in the same way. He very slowly kind of crushes the skull until his fingers come into the back of his head and you see these kind of clumps of blood and gloop just hitting the floor and then he takes over the uh the airways so the song cuts out and he starts reciting these same few lines over and over again this is the water and this is the well drink full and descend the horse is the white of the eye and the dark within over and over again he says it into the microphone and it's being broadcast out to all these people listening. And one by one, you see them all just collapse unconscious wherever they are. In the diner, in the garage, and in the girl's bedroom. I, I think there's a few interesting things about these lines that he says. First of all, he talks about drink full and descend. And the fact that these woodsman-like characters sort of came down from the air onto the ground and appeared. There's a bit in The Missing Pieces from Fire Walk With Me where the arm says... From pure air we have descended, from pure air, going up and down, intercourse between the two worlds. 
So I think that's kind of to do with the fact that these two worlds are the, the real world that we're in now and the rip that's been opened by the explosion that links to the uh, the lodge world as well. But yeah, that from pure air, I do wonder if that means that, it, that the air was pure at some point, but now it's been polluted by the radioactivity of you know the explosions. So you know, from from pure air, we've descended. And that's how you see them descending and dropping down into the desert when they go chasing after the egg and going to the uh, uh, radio station as well. Hey, you just made me think of what Ben Horn says when he's trying to charm. I think it's the Norwegians into investing in the Ghostwood project. It might, might have been the Icelanders, but I think it was Norwegians, where he quotes one of them as saying about how good the air is up in Twin Peaks. And he says, my air sacs have never felt so good, or something like that. Because the, because the air up there is so wholesome, uh, allegedly, but it's obviously not underneath. Yeah, going back to a couple of things which we see featured in the original script for Fire, Walk With Me as well. So I don't think these are actually in the missing pieces, but there are bits which kind of do link with some of the things that are being said. So this whole got a light thing, I mean, that could be to do with the imagery of fire, which is occurring a lot around Bob. But I remember there's a line that Bob has in the original script, which is something to do with the light of new discoveries, which could be to do with the light that comes from the discovery of the bomb, the fact that this exists. So maybe he com he comes from that, that, that energy, which has been created by man as well. And indeed, it's followed up by something that Mrs. Tremont says, which is, why not be composed of materials and combinations of atoms, which might link to all those chemical reactions you're seeing as a result of this explosion. So it does seem that these lodge denizens are created by that explosion very, very explicitly. Yeah, and then her grandson says, this is no accident. Um, and the other reference in this, I don't know if you can call it a poem, but this chant almost that, that he has, is a reference to the horse of um, the horse is the white of the eyes and the dark within. So is, is this going back to the imagery of the white horse that Sarah Palmer sees? repeatedly and indeed that good coop saw in the lodge immediately after laura disappeared into into the sky i think they appear as well at the end at the very end of the episode you can see the lincoln woodsman wandering off and you can hear horses in the background as well mm. yeah and speaking of like the whole chanting thing as well i mean the original uh fire walk with me poem as well has that line one chance out between two worlds fire walk with me i do wonder if the meaning of that is actually that the the chant is actually the explosion. It's a it's a message from the man-made world which is being sent out, which is linking the two worlds, the real world and the lodge world as well. So there could be something going on there that maybe, you know, it really ties together this idea that the explosion is what's triggered all the chaos and this rip has opened up between both worlds. And so then we end by going back to... Um, the girl's room and we see that she's asleep so all these characters have been lulled to sleep by listening to this poem over and over again on the radio and okay so this is where it gets a bit tricky but the cock frog creature kind of comes in <laughs> through the window just like bob emerged into laura's room in fire walk with me mm. as well so there's a similar parallel there so maybe it could be bob or maybe this is just the way these black lodge creatures kind of get into rooms i don't know and while she's asleep, the girl actually opens her mouth and the cock frog kind of goes up to her mouth and kind of climbs its way in. And then she shuts her mouth again. 
and then you then see the Lincoln Woodsman dude kind of knowing that everything has been done almost like his mission was to you know subdue everyone with this repeated poem and then he now knows that this creature has found its host or one of the hosts it's meant to have and then he kind of just wanders off and you know we're left with this very unsettling thought of this girl who's asleep who's just swallowed this weird creature which we know it's either very very good or it's very very bad <laughs> whatever this thing is i mean it's unpleasant imagery but lynch has never shied away from mixing the two things you know unpleasant imagery but not necessarily being linked with something bad and as the dude walks away as we were saying you know we hear horses in the background and the yeah. credits roll and everyone is left in extreme shock at <laughs> what they've just witnessed <laughs> So what are the options for what the cockfrog is? Because there was something weird about its feet. Yeah, what's strange is it, it clearly has five toes or fingers or whatever, <laughs> which is kind of a bit unsettling as well. And it's got, they're, they're frog's legs almost, but it's clearly got five digits on each, um, on each leg, which is a bit weird. So it's clearly some humanoid kind of creature. It does make you wonder if what it is we're actually seeing, obviously. So is it, is it Bob? I don't know because we saw Bob as a separate sack of, you know, something um, alongside that stream of all the other stuff spewing out of the mother. Yeah, whereas the cockfrog seemed to uh, get find its way out of an egg that looked like the other eggs that were attached in that long stream. So it could just be another Black Lodge denizen, another spirit... It'd be really interesting if this is a new spirit that we haven't seen, or we have seen, but we don't realise there is spirit. I mean, this could be, for all we know, this could be red, <laughs> you know, emerging. It could be just another character completely. Yeah, because all those other characters fell asleep. Do you think that something also crawled into them? Yeah, so we, we know that there are lots of these bugs, potentially. There, there are lots of eggs. We see lots of woodsmen. And on those shots of the explosion, you see all these different specks of things, which could be bugs floating around. So maybe there are lots of these things happening. And maybe we're looking at one but it's happening to lots of people at the same time. We mm. don't really know. So there might be other bugs. But what is also an interesting parallel is what happens with the girl opening her mouth, which mm. is the fact that it's a bit like Leland, because he says, I let Bob in. Mm. And she is, although she's asleep, she's letting this creature come into her mouth. And mm. you do wonder if maybe it is Bob, or maybe it is just another Black Lodge spirit. It's kind of hard to say, and I don't really want to go either way, because I don't think it's that straightforward. Yeah, I mean, the the other option is that it's something to do with what the, the people in the Art Deco mansion sent that is related to Laura in some way. But it didn't look like anything like what they had sent. It didn't look like a golden ball. It didn't have any connection to it. So Certainly, I, it's, still, it's still in the black and white world, whereas that gold ball was able to be gold against a black and white background. Yeah. So yeah, it's, not like a, it's not like a, you know, the cock frog is not gold. Or has yeah. any colour on it? Um, it's something a bit strange. I mean, that, but that goes back to another thing. So, do you think? Well, do you have any speculation on who you think the girl is, or who, or who the boy is as well? I I don't know. I mean, that she would be the right age to be potentially Sarah Palmer, but I don't know how she would end up going from New Mexico to Twin Peaks. It it, it could be an, I guess another figure. Could it be Mrs. Tremond? Could be maybe. 
I'm not sure that if she'll be too young, but I don't she, know if time works differently. I mean, it could be anything that's going on. I do think she would be too young because she would have been the age in 1990. Could be in her 80s that, or something, yeah. Yeah, that Sarah Palmer would be around about the right age. could be about 70. I mean, it would link to the fact that Sarah is psychic and also that she can see Bob as well. But I'm just not convinced necessarily that the girl is Sarah. It could be, I mean, the ideal thing to happen, almost given that everything is so unexpected, is, well, firstly, this could be completely unrelated to anything. It could be never touched upon again. <laughs> but maybe this is the first host that this creature goes into. Mm. And it could be completely unrelated to a character we know. Um, it could just be showing the mechanism that one of these bugs uses, and we can then infer from that what Bob might do. It could be that if it is Sarah, is it a way for bob to find leland or something it doesn't make sense i think because leland interacts with bob at pearl lakes yeah when leland is young yeah and he sees the character of bob as he looks like bob yeah you know uh, like the frank silver appearance and then he has and that's where we also have the other problem because this whole got a light thing is very similar to bob flicking matches at him mm. saying you know do you want to play with fire or, or whatever it is so there's a link with bob with the phrase God of light, but I don't know if this is a link generally between fire and, you know, sparks and matches and things and the Black Lodge creatures generally. It may not be a Bob-specific thing. The other way it does kind of visually resemble Bob in some way is that the way that it crawls, it's a bit like, you know, when Maddie has her vision of Bob coming towards her and he comes from behind the sofa and he kind of crawls towards her in that weird way. It reminds me a bit of the way that this... this Cockfrog thing was crawling around. And one thing I wanted to go back to about the woodsman figures is that we see them in 1956 being very corporeal when they need to be. You know, he walks into the station, he kills people with his own hands, um, and, and some of the other kind of woodsman-like characters who surround the couple in the car, they, they seem... They're physically there. Um, I know they can kind of sort of descend and they seem to go in and out a little bit, but but there is a physicality to them. And as you say, they're not necessarily as kind of charcoal and burned as they appear later on. When we've seen the two who we've seen in, in the series so far, the one who disappeared in the jail cell near Bill Hastings and the one who walked down the corridor in Buckhorn Police Department when um, the woman from the military was on the phone to Colonel Davies. They both seemed far less corporeal. The one who walked down the corridor, she didn't seem to see that he was there. She kind of maybe heard something, but didn't see him. The, the ones that we saw in the woods who appeared to bring Bob out of Bad Coop after he got shot, they seemed very ethereal and wispy. You could see right through them. You could see Ray sitting on the opposite side of them and see right through them to where Ray was. They don't seem as corporeal as they were. And certainly the one who was in the jail cell near Bill Hastings, he just seemed to disintegrate into nothing. And his head kind of flew away. Um, And it made me wonder if, with their genesis seeming to have something to do with the nuclear test, are they themselves radioactive? Is this why things go a bit haywire when they're around? Um, 
you know, the, the, the sound goes a bit crazy, lights go a bit crazy. And, and basically, are they radioactive and are they degrading over time? Like the half-life of a radioactive hmm. isotope. Are they wearing themselves out? Is that why they look now completely burned out? And almost like they're starting to disappear in the way that the one in the jail cell did physically disappear. Are they reaching the end of their of their half-life? Are they just going to crumble into nothing because they've burnt themselves out with their radiation? So why do you think we see those two woodsman characters in the present day, in inverted commas, looking on near Bill Hastings when he's in prison and also at the morgue? Yeah, it's sort of, I mean, obviously, Bad Coop and therefore Bob has had some connection to what has gone on. Um, we can presume in some way with the murder of Ruth Davenport and what is almost certainly Major Briggs. Um, and certainly we've, we saw him kill Phyllis. But they don't seem to be hanging around looking for Bob, whereas the ones who come out of the woods, they seem drawn to the fact that Bob is kind of being drawn out of of bad coop as he's as he's dying or or wounded but the ones in the police station i don't know if if they are um are they are they drawn there because of whatever we we talked before about maybe the thing with ruth davenport's head and major briggs body and the the ring that he's wearing and that kind of thing maybe being some kind of ritual are, are they there because of that have they almost got stuck in there because they were drawn to Bob's energy when he was around but because they're so depleted of energy they just they just can't leave they just wander around they just shuffle about they don't they they seem kind of aimless um the one who walked down the corridor seemed aimless the one who was just sitting in the cell looked like he was just ready to disintegrate um but they they seem to be I don't know, almost left behind after Bob's presence there with Bad Cooper, maybe. Yeah, so one thing I want to add as well is to do with something I was reading in the Secret History. So I read it a couple of times, but I was just flicking through just before a recording to find any specific references to the Manhattan Project. And there's one which is really interesting, and there might be more in here. I kind of want to go back through it again because I can't remember everything that's in there. There's so much detail in this. But there is a bit where they talk about um, a place uh, which is, I think it's called uh, Hanford, which is in Washington State. And that is the location where they seem to be actually producing the plutonium for these atomic weapons. And they're the ones which are being made there and then shipped to um, New Mexico, where the bomb testing is actually happening. Now, what they say is that this area is one where three different tribes are moved from that area to local regions whilst the government takes it over to put in a um, a beta reactor to make the plutonium and one of them is the Nez Pierce tribe so it's kind of interesting because actually we have a weird connection I don't know if this is real but between a physical location which is much closer to Twin Peaks in Washington and something that's been moved from there to New Mexico and linking that energy potentially with what's being used in these atomic bombs which are being tested in the Manhattan Project but also the fact that um, it links with the Native American mythology as well because obviously one of these tribes is the Nez Pierce which is Hawke's tribe and it links a little bit to the message that Chief 
Joseph kind of gives um, at the end of the long section about uh, Meriwether Lewis, who's had his interaction with me. He gets the ring from him, etc., and is told not to wear it. There's an interesting um, section where there's a line from the character who's related to Jeremiah Johnson. I think it's um, Liver Eating Johnson in this, who talks about the fact that he believes that there will be a reckoning that will come if ever sort of people mess with the the Nez Pierce land and tribe. And it's interesting because in the Hanford site, what happens is although the tribes are all moved, um, it says that they all get ill afterwards because a lot of the nuclear waste is actually dumped there as well. It goes into the water and things like that. So there's something about potentially the reckoning could be to do with the fact that uh, the displacement of the Native Americans was one thing, but the subsequent poisoning of them as well by the um, nuclear waste is actually even worse as well. And this could be part of the link between the spiritual side of uh, the Native American mythology and also what we're seeing with this uh, bomb going off in New Mexico. And yeah, one last thing um, before we wrap up, which is to do with Gordon Cole's role in all of this. <laughs> so obviously a few things are kind of popping out now between what we've seen specifically on the walls of Gordon Cole's office and what we see in this episode. Yeah. So we saw him doing his kind of crazy whistling last week. But what do we see in the background? Um, we saw the picture of the corn that we speculated back then was to do with the Garmin Bosia. And certainly there's reference to Garmin Bosia and corn here with the cans of corn in the convenience store. And it's kind of funny because now you think about it, he's just whistling and you're paying attention to him, but actually what's behind him could actually be quite important. It's almost like he's saying, yeah, I'm here, but you know, take a look around as well, see what's going on. We've noticed a couple of times he has um, a picture of the explosion, which is the same explosion that we're seeing here. He has that wonderful picture of a mural on his wall. But the other thing is the Kafka image. And actually there's a weird parallel here because obviously Kafka wrote The Metamorphosis, which is about the guy who turns into a bug. Mm. And uh, I think there's something funny here because obviously we have what we're calling the cock frog. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but it could be um, a manifestation of a humanoid-like spirit in some way. So there is some weird tangential link to The Metamorphosis. And it is a bit weird that these three things all link to the things found on Gordon Cole's wall. And maybe there's some bigger tie to what we're seeing as part of the whole Blue Rose mythology being events which are linked specifically to this explosion when somehow the walls between two worlds have been torn down. But again, as we said at the very beginning of this episode, we have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and most of what we've just been talking about is likely to be proven wrong. Um <laughs> You know, some of it immediately, uh, some of it probably an hour 18. I don't know, <laughs> but it's a wonderful journey. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again in, I think, a couple of weeks for the next part, part nine. So although we've got a couple of weeks to wait now for the next episode where we're going to be covering part nine, in the meantime, we're going to be doing something kind of special uh, round about this time next week. It'll be coming out. So it's going to be a, a crossover episode between us and the guys from Bickering Peaks, which is a really good Twin Peaks podcast, uh, which if you're not listening to, you definitely should. And basically the idea is we're going to get together. We're going to record an episode. It's going to be in two parts. We're going to release a part. They're going to release a part. We're going to be talking about everything that's happened so far, the whole of the first eight parts, what we reckon's going on, 
where we think it might be going and we really want to hear loads of questions and feedback from people on Twitter so if you want to get in touch with us or, or with Bickering Peaks and just throw any question our way that you feel like no matter how crazy it is and we're going to try and get through them as many of them as we can in our crossover episode next time yeah so uh, we're going to put this out next Monday night or Tuesday or so yeah we're recording it this coming Friday yeah so if you can please get questions to us by Thursday if you can or early Friday and we'll do our best to incorporate as many of them as possible into our crossover episode which is going by the name Listening Post Alpha. Mm. Yes if you want to send any questions to Listening Post Alpha you can tweet them to us at our usual uh, Twitter account which is TFCAA. We've also got a website timeforcakesandale.com where you can drop us a message and of course we're available for subscribing to in all the usual places itunes stitcher podcast addict all the usual apps and if you feel like you've got a spare five minutes please do think about leaving us a review on itunes that would be great so that's it for part eight next time we'll be listening post alpha with Lindsay and aiden over at bickering peaks and the week after that we'll be back with part nine of time for cherry pie and coffee goodbye goodbye